This episode of Inquisitive is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. My name is Dr. Drang, or at least that's how I'm known on the internet. And the album I have chosen is the Beatles' 1966 album, Revolver. Definitely made a, a point now. I think of the album I have chosen. Uh, is that am I correct in thinking that? Like, because you know, I say, well, "What's your favorite album?" And this is the album that you've chosen. It's I have I have lots of favorite albums. Yeah, and it really it it changes. I wouldn't say it changes from day to day, but certainly it changes from year to year. And when you're as old as I am, uh, that means you've had a lot of changes. And it changes with my mood. But one that has stuck with me for 40 years or so, as always in the top group, if not the top one, is Revolver. Why do you think that this album has maintained such a constant? Well, uh, the Beatles are my favorite group. And which is, you know, kind of a, uh, that's an easy choice to make, obviously. And especially uh, for people of my generation. Or, or earlier, but uh, Revolver is a turning point uh, in the Beatles' career. It is a, a spectacular collection of songs. It's not as thematically consistent as, say, Sgt. Pepper, but there is, there is a consistency to it in that it, it represents what they were doing at the time, uh, there's a lot of LSD in this album, and and the songs are just really good, and the production is good, and it is, as I said, it's a new direction. It's a big change from uh, Rubber Soul, which is the previous album. I, I definitely agree. There are just some just fan. Basically, every song on this album is is great. Uh, but one of the things that I find interesting about this album is it has a maybe lesser uh, amount of the extremely well-known songs. I think of this on this album, like the ones that I think, are, you know, everybody knows, like everybody knows Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine. But they're yes. like, for me, when looking through this track list, whilst I knew all of these songs, they're like, you know, I think about what are the like culturally popular and significant songs. And there's probably only those two that I can see on this album, unless you disagree. Uh, um, you know, I, I would say that that's basically right. I would put Good Day Sunshine and Here, There, and Everywhere maybe a, you know, a step beat below them. Also very popular songs, of course. But yeah, you're right. Oh, Got to Get You in your, Into My Life. You, yeah, I mean, I can keep going, but I would say those those are maybe a half step below Yellow Submarine and Eleanor Rigby as, uh, you know, very popular, very well-known. You don't have to be a Beatle fan to know those songs. Uh, you may not even know them, if, in the case of Got to Get You Into My Life, you may not even know them as a Beatle song. Uh, you may know that one as, as an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure I heard it as an Earth, Wind, and Fire song before I heard it as a Beatle song. Yellow's, whilst we're talking about it, Yellow Submarine is a very interesting addition to this album. 
because it for me anyway i i don't really feel like it fits in the same way like it it feels like it belongs on like sergeant pepper or something as opposed to this album it it does well you know there's kind of a blending between this album and and sergeant pepper where and it's and it's all the lsd sort of stuff and the psychedelic aspects of it um and the thing about Yellow Submarine that does make it fit in maybe better with Sergeant Pepper is that it's kind of, is the whimsy. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines Many of the songs on this album were bringing in unusual instrumentation or, or unusual uh, sounds in the background. Uh, but Yellow Submarine fits, it does fit. You can imagine Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band playing Yellow Submarine. Uh, you, you know, the fictional band of, of Sgt. Pepper. You can imagine them playing the song Yellow Submarine. Yeah. Uh, it was also, Yellow Submarine was... Um, a, a not so much musically an important uh, song for the Beatles, but uh, financially and culturally a very important song for the Beatles because it kind of set off this uh, uh, the second wave of Beatlemania. It wasn't really Beatlemania, the second wave, but you had the first you had true Beatlemania, which is you know from in in the UK starting in '63 probably, and then in the US in '64. Uh, where there are toys and there are all just all sorts of things. Anything that they could slap the word Beatles on or a picture of the boys on, they would do it there in those early years. Then there's kind of a, a lull. And then out comes Yellow Submarine, the song first, then the film, a uh, very Peter Max-inspired animation. And then you get this uh, tremendous burst of... Uh, yellow submarine lunchboxes and yellow submarine posters and yellow submarine erasers and uh, that you put on the end of your pencil and blue meanies here and just everything. There's tremendous glut of uh, yellow submarine branded kitsch uh, that came out. And I, I suspect the Beatles didn't make nearly as much money off of that as they should have, uh, but still it got, it got them back not that they were ever out of the popular imagination, but it was it was this huge burst of um, paraphernalia that that came out because of that song, and it's a wonderful song. It really it's is. Just, it's just the most. It is it is Paul absolutely at his best. Uh, written mostly by Paul, some help by John, help by Donovan. Um, apparently, Donovan wrote the line. You know Donovan, right? I don't think I do. Donovan Leach, he did um, Sunshine Superman, uh, uh, Atlantis. You don't, you don't know? Oh, I, well, anyway, he was, a, <laughs> he was a folk singer. He's kind of a twee folk singer, psychedelic guy. He went to Rishikesh to meet the Maharaja with the, with the Beatles. All right, anyway, okay. He, he wrote uh, the, I believe he wrote the uh, Sky of Blue, Sea of Green in our Yellow Submarine uh, line, which is, which is really nice. Um, just 
you know, it's, it fits in with a, uh, a tradition that the Beatles had of giving Ringo a song mm-hmm. and, and um, a silly writing song. <laughs> a, a silly song, often, usually a simple song. Uh, yeah. Ringo's not the greatest singer in the, in the world. So they, uh, John and or Paul would write a song for him that had a limited range that was, you know, right in his vocal wheelhouse that he could sing. And that's why, that's part of why Ringo's songs are so delightful. And especially this one, uh, obviously Octopus's Garden uh, in a similar yeah. vein. That's exactly what I was thinking of when I said a silly song. Yeah. Yeah. N- no question about it. And not just easy to sing, but also a, a very simple structure to the song. I mean, the way it starts off with John's rhythm guitar, you know, strum, 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 strum. The chorus is great. The mix in of the silly noises in the background and the burbling and all that stuff. It's just, it's just a wonderful song. And, um, it's probably, it probably is their most recognizable song. Like it's the most, I would say that, you know, probably in history, it ends up being the song that people just know like the Beatles song that they just know. Um, well, I probably for people of your generation and maybe maybe a little bit older. Uh, yes, that's probably true. Mainly, I think because you heard it as kids. Yeah. I mean, I would I would bet I did. Your your parents probably had some album of children's songs, and whether mm-hmm. it was the Beatles doing it or somebody else doing it, Yellow Submarine is on all kinds of children's albums. When I was a kid, it was effectively a like a nursery rhyme type song you yeah know, like you, like you would sing row 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 your boat or something yellow submarine was one of them absolutely and you know and it's got a, a great history you know the, the the chorus the people singing the chorus you've got uh mick jagger brian jones marianne faithful uh donovan is in there um uh, i can't believe you don't know you're so young my god uh <laughs> So yeah, Yellow Submarine, spectacular song. You know, it's I'm I'm a John guy, not a Paul guy, and so it's easy for me to kind of be down on Paul's songs as being sappy and silly and dumb, and this and that's certainly true of Yellow Submarine. It's not sappy, but it's it's certainly it's it's silly, but it's so good. I mean, Paul Paul just music just pours out of Paul the way breath pours out of the rest of us. And sometimes it's not great music, but when he, when he's on, he's really on. And this, he was on, on this one. No one's going to think this is a deep song, but it is, it is a great song. We've got way into the weeds already. Yes. Let's, let's, let's back it up a little bit because I want to talk more about the specific songs that are on the album, but I feel like I still need to learn a little bit more about why this album is significant to you. Um, so what, what about this album specifically, uh, you know, maybe more than any other Beatles album or more than any other album uh, itself is, is such a strong choice for you. Like this album has made a mark on you that has stuck around. And, and I would like to try and understand what that is. I think it's, well, if you get right down to it, it's John's, it's John's songs, the, the two John Lennon songs the, uh, that close out the two sides of the album. And so we have to kind of uh, go back a little bit here so that, I mean, you know this as one album. 
right? I mean, this is a, this is an album for you. Yep. And for, for everyone your age and everyone who's maybe 15 years younger than me, anyone who's under 40 probably thinks of it as a single album. It's not a single album for me. It is, it, it, there is one album. I have my, ugh, I have my vinyl copy, which I dug up out of the, out of the basement. And in the United States, Capitol Records, which distributed Beatles albums, uh, sliced the hell out of the Beatles albums, cut them up, took songs off, rearranged them. Up until Sgt. Pepper, no album released in the United States was what the Beatles intended. Uh, not a single one. And this album, Revolver, is missing the Capitol release, uh, the U.S. release, was is missing three songs, uh, all of them by John. So it's missing And Your Bird Can Sing, Dr. Robert, and I'm Only Sleeping. And missing those songs, as I, as I look at it now and as I've looked at it ever since getting the CD version, because the CD versions, no matter where you are, they are they're released the way the UKs are. Okay, actually, Capital, to try to come up with some more money, actually released CD versions of their chopped up awful uh, album choices and God knows who wanted to, to buy those, but uh, apparently somebody must have. Um, I think that the, the t- you would think that missing those three songs uh, because they are lysergic songs, no question about it, that it would, it would turn the, the um, it would make the, it does make the album more polish it makes the album a bit more poppy rather rather than LSD inspired, but despite missing those three songs, having only two John songs on the album, the two John songs that were on the American release of of um, of Revolver are just spectacular. Their placement at the end of the of each side gives them more impact because. You're listening, and you hear the song, and it ends up with uh, "She said, she said," and then you have to go over and flip the record. So you're still thinking about that song for quite a while. You might be lying uh, in your bed and listening to the listening to the album, and you just kind of lie there for a while and let that song, even after it's finished fading out, uh, you that the song kind of replays in your head. It, it washes over you, um, and it sticks with you while you're going over and flipping the record to play the second side. And then uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, which comes on at the end of side two, uh, is it's the same thing, and perhaps even more so, because now you're done with the album and you're not interested maybe in flipping over uh, or, or go, moving on to another album. Uh, it just it stays with you. It's At least that's how it did for me. I can remember uh, listening to this, uh, sitting in my dorm room, uh, listening to this like during a break in classes or in the evening or whatever and I would just lie in bed after hearing after the album is done just just sitting there and thinking about it and replaying it in my head and it's a uh, Tomorrow Never Knows in particular is just a, a very powerful song very interesting to listen to. I don't. I. 
I can't tell you how many times I've listened to that song. I always find something maybe not new, but I, but I think about different things every time I listen to it. I think it's, it's uh, not a coincidence that that song was chosen for, um, uh, to be featured in Mad Men uh, a few years ago. The, um, there's a, I don't know if you, I don't watch Mad Men. My wife does. And, she, and when she watched that episode, she, oh, you need to see this. And, uh, you know, Don Draper plays it. His what he's got the new wife at this point. She's younger and hipper than, than he is. He's still got the kind of old late fifties kind of, uh, Frank Sinatra kind of style to him. And his younger wife is trying to, uh, hip him up, get him hip. And, she ha- he plays tomorrow never knows and i i don't re- there were stories in in uh about how they got the rights to play it and i'm sure it was incredibly expensive but it was it was the perfect song it is it is an indication this is the new thing coming in now and and don of course doesn't doesn't understand that um he's still Kind of in the old ways at that point. I think he got hipper at the end of the at the end of the show, from what I hear. But he just doesn't understand the song, and it's it is hard to explain. It's not a it's not verbal. It doesn't come from the words. I mean, I, I realize you know you've got the words from uh, uh, that are sort of well, sort of taken from uh, from uh, uh, Timothy Leary's. Uh, the psychedelic experience. The words don't matter. It's it's how they put that song together. It's the quality of John's voice. It is Ringo's drumming, which is spectacular. And then it's all the tape loops that they put together and somehow managed to corral turning a bunch of essentially random tape loops into something that was a coherent whole and had uh, had a tune to it. It's it's just it's an amazing feat. So when did you, going back a bit, you said about the, the album being kind of split up in the States and parts mm-hmm. of it being taken off. Uh, at what point in your life or how long after was it that you heard the album as it was intended? Oh, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't until the CD was released in 1987, I think, was, was when um, Revolver first came came out in the states the way it ought to. I mean there were import records which I didn't ha- which I didn't own, but obviously you could have gotten an import record. I, I mean I had I had all the songs, right? Because um, the three songs that were taken off of Revolver I've got my other I, I Casey would be proud of me. I have vinyl out today. Uh, not not that I'm listening to it cuz that's just stupid, but um, but I have my old albums out. Uh, the three songs that were cut from Revolver were put on an album that was called Yesterday and Today, which actually came out before Revolver. Hmm. <laughs> Yesterday and Today, which, which was obviously anchored by the song Yesterday, uh, was put out by Capitol in June of uh, 1966, and, uh, whereas Revolver came out in August. 
So in a weird way, Americans got a taste of what revolver was going to be uh, before the British did. So the songs that, so you listened to these songs then, but it wasn't until the 80s that you heard them on revolver. Yeah, recognize I'm not as old as you might think. I never heard any. I I heard very few Beatles songs in the '60s. I was, right. uh, you know, I was born in 1960, so you'd. I knew the Beatles. I heard them. I was actually a bigger Monkees fan uh, when I was a little kid, when I was under 10, uh, because uh, the Monkees had a cool TV show, uh, sure. and they were fun. They were fun. Um, it wasn't until so when I was, but when I was a teenager, that's when I started getting into the Beatles. Well, right. now you know the Beatles are done. It's now the it's now the '70s. They're still very popular. People are still talking about, well, maybe they'll get back together, that sort of thing. So, um, no, I did not hear the album from beginning to end in the order in which it ought to be listened until the late 80s when I got the CDs. How did that change Revolver for you? It's it's interesting um, because I was so – it sounds wrong to me in some ways – uh, just because I had listened to the American release so many times. And even as I was making notes uh, for, for this podcast, I was listening to the songs, and I, was listen- I listened to the album in order, and I was making notes. And um, I would start writing the name of the next song during the fade-out of, of the previous song. And in a couple of cases, I got it wrong. Mm. Because I went back, my, my, my fingers went back 40 years, and I was expecting the song that came out next on the American release to come up, and it didn't. For example, I mean, at the end of when Eleanor Rigby fades out, I fully expect for no one to start up. I expect to hear that sort of... Uh, well, I don't even know what instrument it is, but it's an in- Indian instrument, uh, a, a sort of arpeggio that starts off uh, for no one, George's song. And when I listened to the CD, really not a heck, I mean, how, many, how long have I had the CD? Nearly 30 years. Um, as I've been listening to it, it's still, I'm still surprised when I hear I'm only sleeping start up um, instead of for no one. Do you listen to it today in this order or do you do you listen to it in the american order i listen well, it's um i listen to it in this order when i listen to it as an album the, the actual order. yeah I, I listen to it as it is on the cd so you know i i have the cd many many years ago i i uh ripped the cd and burned it to an mp3 and that's what's in my itunes and that's what i listen if i'm not listening to it on shuffle where you know, I could hear almost anything coming up, but when I'm listening to it as an album, I listen to it in the CD order, in the in the UK order. So, what you just said about the shuffle there, do you tend to listen to your music that way? Usually, yes, because I'm usually listening to music while I'm working or while I'm just doing something else, and um, I kind of I like the surprise of songs coming up on shuffle. And then every once in a while, I will change and just say, "No, I'm going to listen to this album." Certainly, when I buy new music, I listen to I listen to it. Uh, I don't just immediately dump it in my library and and put it on shuffle. I uh, I listen to the album all the way through. 
uh, a few times before sort of moving it off into my into a shuffle playlist. Of course, and, and you have to realize also, to me and people of my generation, shuffle is it's not the experience we grew up with. It's an interesting thing to us. It's more it's more interesting to us maybe than it is to you. You grew up listening to songs individually. I did not. Uh, I never had the patience to make mixtapes. I always, even when I was, you know, taking albums and putting them onto cassette, I just put the album onto cassette straight through. And that's how I listened. And I listened that way. I probably listened to Shuffle more than I've listened to albums straight through, you know, given how many years have gone by since the iPad or iPod rather. But, um, it's those formative years when you're a teenager and in your 20s when that sort of sets what you think, how you think music ought to be and what you, what you enjoy in music. And it sort of sets the habits uh, for you and your expectations maybe more than habits. Uh, and my expectations still are listening to an album all the way through. So it's kind of delightful to me when I hear a song by one artist and another song by another artist. Still, I, I like hearing that. Um, maybe more than you do because that's something you grew up with. I never, ever listen to my full library on Shuffle. I don't listen to my full library. I have, I have certain playlists that are generally genre and maybe right. a few other things that I, or star ratings and things like that. Um, I tend to still then, even though listen to full albums, but I shuffle the albums, um, mm, so, okay. so I don't get bored of the order. Uh, I've I do listen to playlists sometimes. I've been doing that a little bit more with Apple Music, but more often than not, I'm like, what do I want to listen to? I want to listen to either this artist and shuffle this artist, or I want to listen to this album, and then sometimes I shuffle the album just so I'm not like guessing the song and then getting bored halfway through the album or whatever because I know what's going to come next. Like I, I like to mix it up a little bit like that, but I very rarely listen to large parts of my library in, in Shuffle. So you listen to, you'll listen to an album, uh-huh. but not in the order that the artist put it. Yes. Well, that's, that's interesting. I would never do that. Yeah. A lot of people that I know would never, would never listen that way. Yep. Yeah, when I shuffle, I t- I will I will do a you know a playlist. I'll do a smart playlist where it's just all one artist, and then I'll just get whatever music I have for that artist, and that'll be shuffled. Or I listen to the album specifically, or I listen to a big melange of artists all shuffled together. Uh, but I have never I've never mixed up the order of an album. One of the reasons I do it is so I get to learn and know all of the songs. Because sometimes, like, you know, you're, or you know, at least I will listen to an album and then maybe I change halfway through and listen to something else or I decide I just, or I don't listen to it, like I get distracted or whatever. But by shuffling it, I get, oh, okay. a, like, a kind of an equal uh, listen, well, ex- like, chance to listen to all of the songs on an album. If that yeah, otherwise sense. otherwise there's a decent chance that you'll, you'll miss the later songs on yeah. the album. Yeah. And then I just know the first half or whatever really well, and then the second right. half not so well. And I like to, if I like an album, I like to know all of it. You know? Yeah, I, I can see that. It's it's certainly not the way I do it, but it's and and to me, listening to an album means 
listening to it in the order that the artist put it. Yeah. Or 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 or, or the record company in the case of uh, <laughs> the the capital versions of the Beatles albums. How often do you listen to Revolver? Like just as a as a thing. When I was younger, I probably didn't go more than two or three days without listening to it. How long did that last for? Mm, six, seven years. That's a long time to listen to the same album. Yeah. Multiple times a week. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then now I don't listen to it. I certainly don't listen to it as an album very often. Uh, the song, the stuff comes up on, on shuffle quite often, obviously, because my library is heavily Beatles oriented. Um, but, you know, every, really, I probably only listen to, a, apart from getting ready for this podcast, I probably listen to it only a few times a year now. Uh, all the way through. I want to take a quick break now, uh, but once we come back, I want to start talking about some favourite tracks on the album. This week's episode of Inquisitive is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. And as you know, there's nothing more that they love than playing a few seconds of a 90s pop song and stopping it like this. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Party. My thanks to Cards Against Humanity, as always, for sponsoring Inquisitive. Let's talk about some favorite tracks. What are they? What are your What are your most favorite? I mean, I assume from the conversation that we've had, it's the Lennon songs, right? My yeah, my favorite. Obviously, my favorite track clearly is "Tomorrow Never Knows." Uh, that's and, and we've talked about that. And uh, she said, she said, I really like. Yellow Submarine, I, I adore. The I'm sort of I'm looking through the list here. I do really like um, Good Day Sunshine. Good day sunshine. I I don't I don't think it's a full song. You can I, I can imagine Good Day Sunshine showing up on the second half on the second side of Abbey Road. In that, in the uh, collection of pastiches uh, that that finish off the the album, it's it doesn't sound completely finished, but I adore it. I think it is it it Paul's piano part, uh, George Martin's piano part as well, really excellent. Um, but you kind of lots of Beatles songs faded out at this point, but this one just kind of fades out and it, it switches gears and fades out um, I kind of wish that Paul had finished this song but it, even even without it being finished it's it's just a great song I really like it um, got to get you into my life also an, a, a, a wonderful song um, not surprising that Earth Wind and Fire wanted to cover it it has that it has an R&B taste to it. Um, you don't get a lot of R&B feel out of 
out of Beatles songs, even when they're written that way, simply because their voices didn't sound, didn't have the R&B sound. Um, but if you kind of, if you hear somebody else uh, sing it, uh, you, you get where the influences come from. And Got to Get You Into My Life is certainly one of those. You know, the, the horn parts are interesting. Um, it's... Uh, there's a little bit of lead guitar in there by John, which is unusual. It's also a very short lead guitar. Um, but Paul's bass work on this is... Uh, actually, Paul's bass work on this entire album is, is excellent. The harmonies on this album uh, throughout are also really good, and I think those are mostly driven by Paul. Uh, he was... Um, he was heavily under the influence of Pet Sounds uh, at this point and uh, was sort of in kind of a Brian Wilson phase, was trying to, I don't know if catch up is the right word, but he, he was really knocked out by, by Pet Sounds and he wanted to get some of that in, into this album and does, I think, very nicely. The, uh, this is what happens when you've got you know essentially 40 years of listening to an album. You start listening for different things. And nowadays, I am often listening specifically for Paul's harmonies uh, because they're, they're very nicely done and they fit the song well. Now, I, I may be giving more credit to Paul than I should. I don't, I don't know. Um, we all know that by this time, John and Paul weren't writing together too much or at least they, they weren't doing the um, the sort of full collaboration uh, that they had done earlier in their career, what would usually happen is one of them or the other would have a song mostly worked out and then the other would help a little bit. And there are stories about uh, Paul typically going over to John's house to work on songs during this period. And he'd either bring something that he had written most of the way through, but was having trouble with one bit or another, or he, you know, he would help John with a song that was uh, mostly written. Um, but definitely at this point, predominantly one person. Then they then they finish the song. Then they go into the studio and they start working out the instrumentation and they start working out the harmonizing and all the other things uh, that end up turning a song into into a uh, into a recorded track. And so it's, it's possible that John and George had more influence on the harmonies than I'm giving them credit for. But overall, I have to think that it's mostly Paul because that's really more what he was interested in. Um, you know, Dr. Robert, for example, has got, uh, it's kind of a hard song. And the harmonies on it that Paul worked out are not the kind of sweet harmonies that you hear in other songs. Uh, Paul is not quite dis dissonant on some of them on, in the harmonies, but he's he's giving an edge to the song, and it's exactly right. It's exactly what the song needs. Um, and and he did that with all of the, all of John's songs on this album, where Paul is is singing along. He gives the song just the right amount. He has, he has a wonderful, deft touch with that. Uh, always has, but in particular on this album. I have not mentioned George's songs because I don't, you know, 
Taxman is a nice song. I love Taxman. Um, George's song, obviously. Some help by John, apparently, on the lyrics. Um, Baseline is excellent. The harmonies are good. The baseline is my favorite part about Taxman. And uh, the guitar break in the song is also great. Done by Paul. Uh, not done by George, oddly enough. And there, there's a there's a lot to it. What I love, I like the middle eight, and I like the the repeated rhymes of you know street, heat, seat, feet, uh, going along there. If you take a walk, we'll tax the street. Blah blah. All all through. Very nicely done. Um, you know, it's it's a song that I think. Probably, probably meant more at the time, as kind of a oh look, the Beatles are talking about a serious subject, not about teenage love. Uh, and although I like the song and I like the driving beat of it and stuff like that, the the text of the song, you know, I like I like the cl- the cleverness of the rhymes. The topic doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, I don't see it as being a uh, a great departure and and something very clever, just because time has moved on. Similar with Eleanor Rigby. Uh, Eleanor Rigby, I think, as you mentioned, everybody knows the song, and uh, I think it's one of those songs that made adults of the time start paying attention to the Beatles because it seemed serious. It's so and beautiful. It, it is. Um, but I kind I like rock and roll more yeah. than, than this. And so yeah. I, it's not one. It is, it is a nice song. It is. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of see the, uh, I kind of see the joints in the song. I, I see how it's put together now. Um, and it, it's, it's less interesting to me than it used to be. Here, there, and everywhere is you know a Paul song, and it's a little on the sappy side. Uh, but and and maybe a, a little too clever. But it's to me, it's it's an I, I like the song, and it has it's an example of. How Paul, as I said before, he just kind of exhales music. Um, this was like a, a school project for Paul. He had this idea for writing a song with this title. This is best I can put together from the, the tremendous scholarship that there is on Beatles songs. And he, okay, I'm going to write this song. And I'm going to write the song where every verse starts essentially with one of these three words and I'm going to go through it in that order so you have you know you have a here verse you have a there verse and you have an everywhere verse and although it doesn't start like you know the everywhere verse uh, doesn't start with everywhere but it's the punch um, uh, that comes in very very quickly and it's like it's like an assignment that he gave himself to write this song and and he did and it's to me, it, it, it shows his tremendous talent and also um, it shows that he, 
it's not inspiration. He just, he sat down, he gave himself an assignment to write this song, and he wrote it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, a, it's, uh, kind of in the Merlin Mann style of, of uh, productivity. You know, you know, sit your ass down and, and do the work. And that's what he did. And, he can't, and, it's, and it is a lovely song. There's no question about it. But what I like about it is, now that I know the story, is how workmanlike it is and how well fitted together it is and how well constructed it is. That also has, a, a, it's also a very Pet Soundsy uh, kind of song. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? I mean, Andrew Bird can sing. I don't think anyone would, would say that this is their favorite song. <laughs> but it has some really interesting parts to it. And of course, as you use, as you listen to more Beatles stuff, you kind of start to appreciate the smaller songs more. Um, and, and you know, I don't the the really popular songs kind of go past me because they're they're just part of the world. Um, but it's the small songs that that I listen to more carefully, and um, the interesting thing about this, the lead guitar is actually George and Paul playing together. Uh, and it's, it, has an, it has an excellent lead guitar part with them playing together. The other thing that I love about this song is not the, so- not the version that's on Revolver. I mean, I like the, so- the version that's on Revolver. But ever since the anthology albums came out, when I hear this song, I think about the, the, the take that is on anthology. I think it's anthology two. I can't remember. Where... Um, John gets the words wrong, which he often did, <laughs> and uh, and he and Paul just start cracking up. You tell me that you've got everything you want, and your bird can sing, but you don't get me. And they're probably high, and that's probably leading to the giggling, but they continue to play. I mean, it's not like they're. It's 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 amazing, and hearing the, as they put these songs, as they put these songs together, um, how they were so good at what they did that they could do. And you know, good musicians can do this, but pop musicians are often not good musicians. The Beatles were, especially by this time, they had been playing together and had been playing a lot for a long time uh, for people who were only, well, they were your age at this point, not even your age at this point. And doesn't that make you feel bad? Um, no, I feel okay. Oh, <laughs> Paul was 24 years old when this album came out. John was 26. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, anyway, uh, so that's, so that's uh, I, like, I like that song partly because of things that have nothing to do with the, with the recorded version. Uh, there's also a very nice uh, uh, bass break. Oh, and the other thing about this is um, there's the backward guitar part by George in I'm Only Sleeping is the first, it's not the first record where they had backward recordings, but it's the first one that's done 
very deliberately in that George worked out what what he wanted it to sound like when it was when the tape was reversed and so he played it deliberately played it backward so that the notes would come out in the right order when the tape was reversed and so why didn't he just play it the front way <laughs> he, well did, have you listened to the song yeah you you get this no you get this really interesting a flavor to the guitar work because the, because it lead it goes into the attack instead of having an attack the string pluck instead of going to attack and then fade it yeah. goes fade up to attack and it has a it has a very distinct sound to it and the the Beatles had done in some ways I should I should say here that um, two songs that are not on the album are kind of part of this album in that they were recorded at essentially the same time. This this album was recorded from April through June, I believe. A lot of stuff was done in April, and then they kind of filled in in May and June. Um, and also recorded at that time was the single Paperback Writer, uh, which was Back With Rain. And Rain has a backward part at the end of it, but that's just... Um, a, a section of the earlier part of the song just turned around and played in reverse. And so the words are backward and, and stuff like that at the end of the song. It's, it wasn't deliberately constructed to be played backward. Uh, I'm Only Sleeping was the first so- time they did that. And it's done very well. George does an excellent job in the guitar part on that. And he's got, I think he's got two guitar parts actually in there that, that, uh, that do that. So, um, I, I, I really like that song for that reason. Let's talk about Love to You. Okay. Not a song that I really think a lot of, but I would say it's the best of George's Indian-influenced songs, mainly because it's very Western. I mean, he's using Indian instrumentation. He's using Indian uh, musicians who actually know how to how to play but it's clearly a western style song and I think it works pretty well because of that I mean it's not the first time they used Indian uh, it's like it's not the first time a sitar was played on a Beatles song that was obviously Norwegian Wood but in that case that was that was John's song and George was just kind of playing it like an exotic sounding guitar it wasn't really trying to sound like an Indian instrument in Love to You they do sound like Indian instruments, but they're not playing an Indian song. And I think it, it works. Um, as I say, I don't, you know, it's much better than, God, what is the, uh, what's the one on uh, Sgt. Pepper? It's like the third song in. Anyway, it's, it's the song I, I usually skip past on, on Sgt. Pepper. He, he was trying to actually write an Indian song in that case, George was, and it, it, I just have always felt it didn't work at all. Um, that's, I would say that's about it for the songs themselves. There are, um, a couple of other things I'd like to talk about, about the album itself as a whole. Okay. Um, first there is the cover. It is a, it is a great cover. Uh, the Beatles had lots of excellent covers, uh, album covers, not covers of other people's music, but the, uh, the album is this collage plus drawing by uh, John Vorman, who is a friend of theirs from the Hamburg days. 
And it is, I think, very much in keeping with what the, what the sound content of the, of the album is. It's got, first, it's hard, to, it's hard to put yourself back in 1966, but one of the things that a lot of people thought about when they thought of Beatles back then was hair and long hair. And the front of this album is dominated by Klaus Vormann's very uh, detailed and meticulous drawing of hair. And it's and uh, the people are the the uh, photos that he has in his collage and the little uh, uh, little drawings of smaller beetles are coming out of the hair. They have the hair wrapped around their arms. Uh, it's it has kind of a Maurice Sendak look to it. His uh, his cartoons. Um, so it's it's a it's a great al- album cover. It is, I think, the only. Beatles album cover that isn't a photograph of the boys. Oh, except for Yellow Submarine, which as an album, Yellow Submarine is not is barely an album. Um, it has only six Beatles songs on it, and two of them were had already been released. So it's I don't think the Beatles considered it their album. Uh, it had a few th- throwaway songs on it, which would almost certainly not have been released otherwise. Anyway, so Beatle albums generally have pictures of the boys. This didn't. Uh, it's dominated by Klaus Bormann's drawings. Very nice. It creeps me out. It creeps you out, really? You yeah. don't like the hair? You don't like the little guy coming out of Paul's ear? <laughs> Stuff like that. See, I don't like the eyes. It. I really don't like the eyes. You don't like John's eyes in particular are probably the ones that bother you, yes? Or George's? Uh, I think George's are the ones that concern me the most. <laughs> George's are looking at you. That's the problem, I suppose, with, with them. George's eyes follow you wherever you go. But they're also way too big. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not a photograph. It's, uh, I, John's eyes, I think, are, are excellent. I think John's eyes and John's nose are just very well yeah. done. Of all the faces, I like John's the most because it's the most cartoony um and it and it is more interesting because of that and the other ones kind of go a bit uncanny valley for me i think which is maybe why i I don't like them maybe i think i think what i like about john the the drawing of john is it it gets his essence you know his persona in just very few lines i mean other than the lines of the hair which and there are millions of them but if you just look at the face portion of it i mean he doesn't even have uh in this there's no outline to his face no that's all covered by everything or it's off the edge of the album or whatever he's just got the eyes the nose and the lips and and it's john i I like that he's given the side eye to paul (laughs) yes of course and paul is not looking at him at all uh is there anything in that do you think or is it some? Is it one of those meaning things that we put on it afterwards? I, I think it's meaning put on it afterward. Right. I, I think he's. I, I think Klaus was uh, structuring this just because. First, I think he. I think he probably felt that he got Paul better by having him in profile. So he does that and has him looking off the edge of the album because if he turns him around the other way, then he's looking into the collage and that's not going to work. It's going to mess up. It's going to mess up Paul. And Paul, of course, was the cute one. So Paul, more than anyone else, you get to see his face 
clear and full, right? You get all of, pretty much all of Paul's outline, uh, outline of his face. Uh, John, I, I, I just, I, John is spectacular. The ear, I don't understand on John, but, uh, but but the other part of his face is great. George never struck the the drawing of George never struck me as being right for George. It's it's not quite. It's to me it doesn't look quite like George. It doesn't no. get his his essence. Ringo I think is excellent, but you know, Ringo's the goofy one. So whatever. Easier to draw. He has, he has more interesting features. He does. Although you know, it's it, it is odd. That, you know, they don't really emphasize his nose. Which you would think, uh, you know, someone would do. If maybe that's why he's from that angle, because to yes. be nice to him. <laughs> I mean, he was. You know, Klaus was a friend of, of all the Beatles, of course, and played uh, on. He, I don't think he ever played on a Paul album because he was a Klaus was a vo- bass player, uh, but he played on all of the solo albums of the other three Beatles, and uh, well, it was with Manfred Mann for a while as well. Um, so. Uh, so anyway, so that's that's the album cover. This is this is a weird thing to talk about, but um, this is the first record. This record had a new sound engineer on it. Uh, the Beatles. It, not, I'm not talking about George Martin. George Martin is the producer. Uh, the sound engineer on the previous Beatles records had been uh, Norman Smith, uh, Norman Hurricane Smith who had had a minor hit in the 70s with a song whose name I can't remember. I think it was Oh Babe. Anyway, um, Jeff Emmerich comes on as the sound engineer. I'm going deep catalog here now. No, I love it. This is what this is all about. But, okay, so Jeff Emmerich comes in on, on, this is, so these recording sessions here in April through June, he's got to kind of prove himself. And so what I think is, is interesting about this is that he comes in and the Beatles are, he comes in perhaps the, the hardest time for a sound engineer to come in because the Beatles want to do everything now. This album and also with Paperback Writer and Rain, more Rain, um, they want to do backward stuff. They want to do tape loops. They want to have weird sounds coming out. They want odd instrumentation. They want everything. They want the sounds that are in their heads, which are which is now different than just two guitars, bass, and drum. The sounds in their heads are, diff- are different. They want those sounds on the album. Yep. And Jeff Emmerich has to do that. Yeah, because okay. in their mind as well, there's nobody that can tell them that they can't. Yes. Which may have been different years earlier, right? But now it's like, we're the Beatles. Like, this is what we want, and you just have to make it happen. It's true. Although, they, you know... Um, one of the things that was great about George Martin is that he did not condescend to the boys, even when they were nobodies. Uh, he did a he tr- he served them well uh, throughout their their career, uh, and you know, giving suggestions here, helping out with the piano part there, uh, scoring a, a string section uh, on another album uh, song. He. He listened to them. I think he listened to Paul more than anyone else. But he also, I mean, he listened to John a lot. And, you know, John wanted a particular sound. And George Martin moved heaven and earth to get that sound. And and he did that even early on when, when the instrumentation wasn't that difficult. 
he was trying to serve the songs and get the sound that they wanted. And it was a, um, he deserves a lot of credit for that because he could have producers in those days, you know, Phil, the Phil Spector style producer, they just took over and the, and the artists were their, were their toys. Um, George served the artists. He, uh, George Martin did. Um, so Jeff Emmerich comes in, by the way, uh, I have I I have an autograph. I have Jeff Emmerich's autograph, <laughs> a friend which a friend of mine got. Uh, he met Jeff Emmerich at, in uh, in Las Vegas, where the, one of the casinos was putting on a, a show called Love, which was based on the this sort of. Uh, it's a Cirque du Soleil show, right? It, uh, yeah, I think so. And it's it's based on the album, this, this fake album that came out not too many years ago, uh, that was done by Giles Martin, I think mainly. I think he did it for the musical, and then they released the album. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because they, they not the musical, the Cirque du Soleil show, and they released yeah. the album of the music that he put together for the Cirque du Soleil show. And then I think a lot of that music then found its way into the video game they made, the the rock band video game. Yes, yes. Well, you know, the that whole thing uh, with well, we can talk about the the reproducing of these of these songs. Um, because I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't own the versions that came out. What was it? Maybe five years ago, where everything was reproduced. They went. Giles Martin went in, and maybe Jeff Emmerich as well went in and tried to separate all the tracks out, and that's what ended up going into Rock Band. The separate tracks. Yeah, because they have to do that for the game. Because absolutely, yep. they had to do it for the game, and then they re they re put all the albums back together after they had these separated tracks. Um, and uh, I I kind of expected to get that as a Christmas present, and it never happened. I don't know why. Um, but I'm, ki- I'm also not disappointed that I don't have it. Beatles songs were produced for what was available at the time, which was pretty low-fidelity stuff. Um, you know, Beatles songs when they were when they were fresh were basically being played uh, on uh, monolithic record players. They were record players. They were not stereo systems. They were just little record players that you could close the cover on, and they had handles on them. They had a, a single or maybe two speakers on them in a in a box that was about twelve by twelve by eight, and that's what a record player was. In, uh, to most Beatles fans in the in the 60s and overproducing the songs to get out little bits I think isn't I think it's historically wrong I, I understand why people like to hear these things in the background but it isn't it isn't the way people heard them in the 60s it isn't, it isn't why people fell in love with them with these songs and it certainly isn't the way the reason I fell in love with the songs I fell in love with what were basically the 1960s the original productions the original mixings of these of these songs and those are the ones I like to listen to it's a little um, like George Lucas in them yes yeah I, I you know I think there's maybe more justification for it sure because you could say well, if the Beatles had had better technology, they would have sounded or if, like this. Or, yeah. if, or if we had better technologies as as listeners, they would have done th- things differently. 
But, you know, the restrictions that they had, the limitations that they had, you know, having only four tracks to record on and having to do these overdubs to, you know, mix things down to one track before they added more tracks onto it, those were part of the limitations that, that led to the art. And I like hearing it that way. There is a story about, um, about Jeff Emmerich and Tomorrow Never Knows, which I wrote a post about, and it's very, it's very well known. Um, John wanted a very specific sound on that for the vocals on that, on that song. And he had a, a few ideas about it. Uh, he wanted a thousand monks chanting from a mountain. And uh, George Martin said, well, I think that might be a little expensive to record. Maybe, <laughs> is there something we could do here? And then John said, well, how about if you do my voice, hang me from a ceiling and spin me around, hang me from a ro- on, a, on a rope from the ceiling and spin me around while, uh, while I'm singing. And that probably didn't sound like a great idea um, to the people at Abbey Road. Uh, you, you don't want uh, you don't want John falling from the ceiling as he's spinning around. What Jeff Emmerich came up with was to process John's voice through a Leslie horn, a Leslie speaker, rather, uh, which and a Leslie speaker usually associated with the, uh, with the Hammond B3 organ. Uh, it's uh, the horn of the speaker spins. And so you get this kind of... Uh, uh, you get both a fade in and a fade out, and you also get a pitch change from the Doppler effect as the horn is spinning around. And it has a, a very interesting sound to it. And as I said, very tightly allied with the Hammond organ. Most Hammond organs at that time, anyway, were, uh, were sold with Leslie speakers. And they had a Hammond organ, of course, at Abbey Road. And it was intimately tied in with, with the, the Leslie speaker was intimately tied in with that Hammond organ. And so Jeff Emmerich broke into it. There were no plugs to, so that you could put another sound uh, coming out of the Leslie. So Jeff Emmerich broke into it and rewired it so that he could get John's voice through it. And that's the quality of the voice that's coming through. And that it was one of the things that um, sort of sold Jeff Emmerich uh, to the Beatles is that he figured out how to do this and got the sound more or less that John wanted. Maybe not the sound of a thousand monks. No, but but you know, you listen to I got that song. The you know, people describe it in various ways. I've heard people describe it as uh, you know, thundering elephants. And I guess that's you know, that's largely the, the drumming work. I have always when I listen to it, I always think that it's 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 like a flock of pterodactyls coming in at you in places and yet somehow so they're all they're squawking but they're squawking in tune they're squawking together they are and it and they're somehow fitting their squawks with the herd of thundering elephants it's i i love that song there's just there's so much to it and and how they managed to put that together in an analog world with a bunch of random tape loops. Because what happened was um, the boys all at home just recorded sounds onto little bits of tape. The, tape. the tapes were turned into loops of various lengths and then put together uh, 
largely by George Martin, I'm sure, but also, but with with the help of the boys, figuring out we want this, we want this, we want this, and it's it's just an amazing thing how that how that sound came out, and it's as I said, it it it, it finishes the album, and it tells everybody something new is coming. Watch out. Are you proud of this album choice? Yes. I mean, how could you? This is, everybody thinks this is a great, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in myself at being so conventional in, in an album choice. Everybody believes that this is a great album. Well, nobody's picked it or a Beatles album yet. Well, you know, I, I don't know. In some ways it's, it's because the Beatles are, are like oxygen. I mean, they're, they're all over how you don't even think of Beatles albums as being, it's easy not to think of Beatles albums as not being special because they're just all around you. I mean, you can't, you can't, can you turn on the radio? If, if you turn on the radio and there's an oldie station on it all, they're go- you're going to hear a Beatles song within half an hour. Um, what they did, even if you're not listening to the Beatles themselves, you're listening to people, well, nowadays you're listening to people who were influenced by people who were influenced by people who were influenced by the Beatles. But the stuff still comes out. And as, as you know, your experience shows, uh, kids hear these songs. Like all, all of my kids, not f- through me, all of my kids know Beatles albums. And they know the songs anyway. They don't know the albums. They know Beatles songs because they've, they've listened to them with friends at school They've, they've heard them from various locations. They, it's, it's not me pushing my, my musical taste on my kids because that never works anyway. Um, it's just the Beatles are always around, and maybe that's why people haven't chosen them. I don't know. Uh, I thought, well, I don't, I don't want to talk about I loved David Sparks' choice uh, of Kind of Blue. And, you know, when you first... Um, when you first tweeted that, just you know, just before the uh, the podcast was released, or as the podcast was released, I was thinking, you know, I think David might be dumbing down his jazz choice. I bet that isn't David's favorite album. Maybe he's done because because Kind of Blue is the jazz album for people who don't like jazz. It's it's thought of that way. It is a spectacular album. I mean, it was a, it was a great choice of his. But when I listened to the show. I realized no, he really does love that. Uh, it, it is it is kind of conventional for a jazz album, but he he deeply loves it. It sounds like he loved that in the same way that you love Revolver, and like you know he said he listened to it every single day for years. Yes, exactly, exactly, and it, and it is it is kind of it, if you're going to choose a jazz album, uh, kind of blue is is a conventional choice. It's an easy choice to make, and if you're going to choose a Beatles album. Or if you're going to choose, if you're 55 years old or older and you're going to choose your favorite album, it's not surprising that you're going to choose an album from when you were a kid or even maybe a little earlier. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be surprising that you would choose a Beatles album. Um, and Revolver is the obvious choice. I mean, Sgt. Pepper might, maybe, Abbey Road, maybe, but Revolver is certainly a very strong choice there. Uh, it, it's, it's an easy choice to make but it's an easy choice to make because it's such a damn good album. 